0: to note, some of you have noticed this who have been here in our series, is that John was, humanly speaking, Jesus' best friend. He was the disciple who Jesus loved. Jesus' had special affection for John. And so the story that he tells perfectly aligns with the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and yet there's something unique about John's Gospel. There's something unique about Jesus that we see through studying this Gospel, the fourth Gospel, and so we're going to give our attention to that this morning as we read John 11, verses 45 through 57. John chapter 11, starting in verse 45, and we'll read through verse 57, the last verse of the chapter. This is God's word. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? should perish he did not say this of his own accord but being a high priest that year he prophesied that jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only but also to gather into one the children of god who are scattered abroad so from that day on they made plans to put him to death Now, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. This is God's word. Let's go to him now in prayer. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that it is living and active. We pray, Lord, that by your Spirit, you might apply this word to our hearts today, that we might not be people who merely hear your word with our ears, but that we might be people who listen to your word with our hearts. Speak, O Lord, for we, your servants, listen. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The year was 1916 and World War I was raging in Europe. During a particularly bloody battle between the French and the Germans, the French forces sustained massive losses. Hundreds of young men died. When this particular battle had ended, two young soldiers brought the body of their fallen friend to a cemetery where they hoped to lay him to rest. As they approached the cemetery located behind an old tumble-down church, a Roman Catholic priest came out to greet them in the road. The Roman Catholic priest said, Young men, this is a Roman Catholic church, and this is a Roman Catholic cemetery. Was your friend a Roman Catholic? To which the young men replied, No, he was a Protestant. The Roman Catholic Priest was very apologetic, but he said, "I'm sorry, young men, there is no possible way that we can lay your friend's body to rest in our cemetery. just it cannot be done." And so the young men, crestfallen at the rejection, went just outside the fence and there, outside the fence, they buried their friend. The next day they returned to the place where they had buried him in order to mark his grave. But they they could not find the place where they had buried him. They looked for evidence of, of the dirt and the grass being disturbed, but there was nothing at all. They were about to go away when the Roman Catholic priest came out once again. And he said, young men, I went to sleep last night and my conscience was bothering me. I knew that I could not bury your friend inside the fence of the the cemetery. I felt so guilty. I I wanted to include him. And so I, I, I thought, what can I do? And so I moved the fence. In our story today, the epilogue to the amazing story of Jesus raising his friend Lazarus from the grave. Jesus moves the fence He tears down the old fence, a fence of legalism and unbelief and fear in order to build a new fence, a fence made of gospel inclusion, provenance, substitution, and the sovereign grace of God. It's a story that explains both the miracle of faith and the mystery of unbelief. It's a story where an unbeliever, Caiaphas, accidentally preaches the gospel to the Sanhedrin. Verse 50, Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people. If you were to look up the word irony in the dictionary, you would find a picture of Caiaphas the high priest. Unbeknownst to him and his cronies in the Sanhedrin, Jesus would, in fact, die for the people. In a sense, that's what the whole Bible is about. In an ironic twist, by the end of the Passover feast, the religious leaders' murderous plan would both tragically succeed and spectacularly fail at the same time. What Caiaphas and the religious leaders intended for evil, God intended for good. The salvation of everyone who believes. So where do we begin? Well, if you're taking notes this morning, here's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through this story both chronologically and thematically. First, we're going to look at two scenes or two major movements in the text. In scene one, we'll talk about the Sanhedrin's solution to the Pharisee's problem. And then in scene two, we'll see God's solution to our problem. So scene one, the Sanhedrin's solution to the Pharisee's problem. And then scene two, God's solution to to our problem along the way i want to highlight four things about life inside the fence four things about life in the kingdom of god four things that distinguish christianity from legalism those four things are this first a word about faith second a word about provenance Third, a word about substitution. And fourth, a word about diversity. So faith, providence, substitution, and diversity. Two big scenes and four big ideas that we'll talk about along the way. Two in each scene. Are you ready? All right, let's take a closer look. We begin with scene 1, the Sanhedrin's solution to the Pharisees' problem. Let's set the stage. Last week, if you were with us, or if you've read earlier in this chapter, we witnessed one of Jesus' greatest miracles. His close friend Lazarus had died, and Jesus, simply by saying the word, brought him back from the dead. According to John, again, once again, Jesus' best friend, Many people believed in Jesus because of this miracle, and sadly, many people did not believe. Verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary, Lazarus' sister, and had seen what Jesus had, had done, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now if you know your New Testament, you'll know that the Pharisees were Jesus' sworn enemies. We know that at least one Pharisee became a Christian, Nicodemus, but other than that, the Pharisees were staunchly opposed to Jesus throughout his life and ministry. In John 8, you'll remember that the Pharisees tried to stone Jesus to death. In in John chapter 9, Jesus healed a blind man, and the Pharisees responded to this by excommunicating that man for having the temerity to acknowledge that it was Jesus who had restored his sight. Now talk about uh, missing the forest for the trees. They completely missed what Jesus was doing. The Pharisees were legalistic in the sense that the letter of the law was as important to them, if not more important, than the heart of the law. Again, we see throughout the Gospel of John and in all four Gospels that one of the Pharisees' chief complaints against Jesus was that he would heal people on the Sabbath day. To them, that was the equivalent of working on the Sabbath day, a violation of the commandment. And so they were constantly pressuring and accusing and getting after Jesus for doing these great miraculous things on the Lord's day. What we see in this story and throughout the Bible is that legalism and Christianity cannot coexist, even on the bumper sticker. Those two things do not work together. Legalism is the enemy of faith. Legalism says, I am my own Savior. Jesus says, I am your Savior. I alone can forgive your sins. That leads us to our first word, which is a word about faith. This scene shows us not only the necessity of faith, but also the mystery of faith. How do you become a Christian? What do you need to do in order to be a disciple? What do I need to do in order to be saved? Is there anything that I need to do to satisfy the righteous requirements of God's law? The answer is, there's nothing that you need to do, but there is something you need to believe. What we need, more than anything else, is faith. We have to believe that Jesus is the divine Son of God, our Savior and our King. We have to believe that Jesus died on the cross in our place as our substitute. Now, we'll talk a little bit more about that word, substitute, a little bit later in the sermon, but for now, it's worth noting that unless we believe that jesus died for us in our place if jesus is merely an example then we've missed the heart of the christian gospel here it is in acts chapter 16 verse 30 then the philippian jailer brought paul and silas out of their prison cell and said sirs what must i do to be saved that is the most important question that you could ever ask what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. You and your household. Here it is in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Hebrews 11, 2 Corinthians 5, really the entire book of Galatians, it is over and over repeated that we are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, what is true faith? We've already seen that some people can confuse faith with a work, something that we have to conjure up on our own. So here's a a helpful definition, one that I learned when I was a little boy learning the Heidelberg Catechism. And it goes like this, very helpful. The catechism asks the question, what is true faith? And the writers respond like this. True faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed in his word. At the same time, it's a firm confidence that not only to others, but to me also, God has granted the forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation out of mere grace only for the sake of Christ's benefits, merits. This faith, the Holy Spirit, works in my heart by the gospel. True faith says the Bible is true. True faith says that I'm a sinner and Jesus is my Savior. True faith says my faith grows as the Holy Spirit applies the gospel to my heart. As I read the Bible and listen to sermons and and pray and sing and take the truths of the word which are outside of me and allow the Holy Spirit to apply them to my heart. How do we do that? Do you have that faith? Do you want that? How do you get faith? Well, that leads us to the mystery of faith. Faith is necessary, but the mystery is how we get it. As your pastor, I wish that creating faith was as easy as telling you information about Jesus. I wish I could just simply say, hey, here's who Jesus was, here's what Jesus did, Here are my arguments for the existence of God. Here's the cosmological argument and the teleological argument and the uh, argument from design. And if you believe these arguments, then you will have faith and you will trust in Jesus for your salvation. Unfortunately, it's not that easy. As you have inevitably experienced, you simply cannot argue people into the kingdom of God. Sometimes people don't believe because they simply don't want to believe, and there's no amount of evidence that can change their minds. Think about the unbelievers in this story. Did they have good evidence to believe that Jesus was who he said that he was? They saw Jesus walk up to the tomb of a dead man. They heard him say, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus, who was very much dead, came out after four days in the grave. According to John, he even smelled like death. So there was no possible way that he had simply taken a four-day nap in there or fallen asleep, uh, maybe went unconscious in some way. Jesus clearly raised Lazarus from the dead. Why didn't they believe? Well, Jesus gives us the answer back in John chapter 6, Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. This is the mystery of faith. As Christians, we go and we do what Jesus and the apostles did. We go and tell everyone that Jesus is our Lord. He is our Savior. We tell them that he died on the cross in our place, that he rose from the dead, that he ascended into heaven, that he is seated in the right hand of God the Father Almighty. We tell people what Jesus has done for us. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, as spiritually blind as the man in John 9. 9 was physically blind but now I see and then Acts 13:48 happens as many as are appointed unto eternal life believe now for many of us this is disturbing. We don't like mysteries. We don't like ambiguity. We like having a, living in a simple cause and effect universe. I say these things, I do these things, and this is the result time after time after time. Hashtag science, hashtag engineering. Uh, I like living in a very predictable cause and effect world. But let me encourage you. The mystery of faith doesn't have to be discouraging for me this is a huge relief because what Jesus is showing us through the unbelief of the witnesses who saw him raise Lazarus from the dead what he's teaching us is that when it comes to evangelism when it comes to sharing the gospel when it comes to our unbelieving friends and family members what we pray is more important than what we say When we pray for our lost family members, when we pray for our lost friends, this has a profound effect on them, much more than any airtight, logical presentation of the gospel that we could ever conceive. Now again, that's not an excuse to sit on our hands. That's not an excuse to say, oh, well, God will do it. No, no, God uses us, absolutely. But ultimately, The mystery of faith is that only God can create faith. So have the arguments. Make the case. Tell the world that Jesus is alive. And then pray like your life depends on it. Because it does. Pray for your lost friends and family members. And when many of them do come to faith, and many of them will come to faith, Give glory to God for the work that he has done. Back to the story. The Pharisees' problem is that people were believing in Jesus, and they didn't like that because they didn't like Jesus. They didn't like grace. They didn't like forgiveness. They did like power. They did like prominence. They did like popularity. See, the Pharisees were in the ancient world essentially like the Bible answer men of the ancient world. If Jesus is the new Bible answer man, they would all lose their jobs. And more important than that, they would all have to submit to Jesus. They would have to humble themselves, which is something that they were completely unwilling to do. So, with the help of the council, they came up with a solution. Verse 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man, Jesus, performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now, let me translate a little bit of that for you. The council is a group called the Sanhedrin. They were essentially the religious Supreme Court of Israel. There were 70 men on the Sanhedrin, plus the high priest, who was also part of the group, essentially the moderator for their meetings, maybe the chief justice of their religious Supreme Court. We'll meet the high priest down in verse 49. Now, the question is, what do the Romans have to do with all of this? It seems like kind of a religious dispute between uh, Jesus and the Pharisees and who's God. The Romans didn't believe in any of that, so what's the problem with the Romans? Well, the Romans, at that time, were the world's lone superpower. You've maybe heard of the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. The Romans said, essentially, if you pay your taxes, if you avoid riots, if you submit to the Roman emperor, you will have peace. The Pax Romana will leave you alone. You can have your little Sanhedrin, and you can keep your uh, temple, you can go ahead and worship the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We won't bother with any of that. But if you step out of line, if you rebel, if you say, we have a new king, his name is Jesus, and he is Lord. Not, not Caesar, but Jesus is Lord. If you do that, we will destroy your nation. You'll be just like all those old ites in the Old Testament, the Amalekites and the Girgashites and the Edomites, all those old ites that don't exist anymore. We will wipe out your place, the temple, You'll be gone. Now, it wasn't an empty threat. The Romans did eventually uh, destroy the temple in 70 AD, and the people of Israel were scattered, and the nation essentially ceased to exist as a geopolitical nation until 1948, which was not that long ago. So what's the solution? Embrace Jesus and risk losing it all, or kill Jesus to save what little we have verse 49 but one of them Caiaphas who was the high priest that year said to them you know nothing at all nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people not that the whole nation should perish now this is just a quick aside before we get to what he said in the bible whenever you're reading the bible a a person's first words are usually pretty important If you read a person's first words, they're going to give you a little bit into the glimpse of the character of that person. Probably the most famous example is Ruth in the book of Ruth. First words in the book, you know, whither thou goest, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. We get a beautiful picture of who she is thanks to her first words. What are Caiaphas's first words? You know nothing at all. Listen up, idiots. Let me explain something to you. This is the high priest of Israel. Do you think they might need a new high priest? And the great irony is they had one. He was standing right there, an eternal high priest, a great high priest, who lives to make intercession for us, and they decided to kill him so they could keep this guy. As the kids say, face palm. I guess no kids say that anymore. We'll edit that out of the live version later on. Verse 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. Now, before we move on, a quick word about providence. That's our second word, providence. Verse 51. Caiaphas did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. In other words, what Caiaphas and his cronies intended for evil, God intended for good. Caiaphas said, we'll kill Jesus and we'll save the nation from the Gentiles. But here's what God wanted to happen God used the death of Jesus not only to save the believing people of Israel, but to save the very Gentiles that they were afraid of. In case you missed it, that's us. God used the death of his son Jesus, this murderous plan, in order to save us. You know, in life, we don't always know the twists and turns of God's plan. But we do know this, Romans 8:28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. The Bible doesn't say that all things are good. This murderous plot to kill Jesus was not good. Cancer is not good. Poverty is not good. If you live in a household where your parents divorced, or maybe they're getting a divorce right now, that is not good. That's not a good situation to be in. War, poverty, corruption, none of that is good. What the Bible does say is that Everything that does happen, even the bad things that happen, will ultimately work themselves together for our good. Now, just a quick word of wisdom from your pastor who has made this mistake. Break the glass on this doctrine with a little bit of caution. Okay you know, sometimes you we get a little bit enthusiastic about this, and it is a great truth. you know all things will work to for good, we can look back on our life at all the jacked up things that have happened, all the jacked up things that we've done, and we say, "Wow, God made something beautiful out of this, But if we're a little bit too quick to speak into a situation where someone is hurting, if we walk into hospital rooms and say, "Hey, buck up, little buddy, uh, you know." <laughs> Ah, you know, chemotherapy, I'm sure it's a little bit bad, but, uh, you know, it's all going to work out together for your good. That's not helpful. Uh, Sometimes we can say ultimately true, helpful things in an unhelpful way. Case in point, Proverbs 27.14 says, Whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice rising early in the morning will be counted as cursing. You see, it's good to bless our neighbor. That's good. We should bless our neighbor. But if you do it with a loud voice early in the morning, well, you've kind of missed the whole point of blessing. You've actually cursed the person. The point is this. Nothing that happens in your life is outside of God's control. Nothing. As bad as your situation might be today, this morning, Physically, psychologically, spiritually, whatever it is, God has the ability to draw straight lines with crooked sticks. God has the ability to turn ashes into something completely beautiful. If God can use the greatest act of evil in the history of the wor- world, the murder of of Jesus Christ to bring about the greatest blessing in the history of the world, the salvation of everyone who believes, then he can use the sinful, broken, messed up circumstances of our lives for good. You just have to be patient and trust him. You remember that picture that your uh, grandma had in her house with the footprints you remember that. My grandma had it. Maybe your grandma had it too. It's a little bit corny too. But listen, it's, it does say something pretty true. Those moments in life where you feel like you're all alone, when you see the one set of footsteps, it's not because Jesus left you. It's not because you're on your own. It's not because he's with you only in the good times. It's because he's carrying you in the bad times. He's lifting you up. He's holding you in the palms of his hands. That's scene one. The Sanhedrin's solution to the Pharisees' problem. People are believing in Jesus. We got to stop him. We got to kill him before the Romans kill us. Bad plan. That leads us to our second scene God's solution to our problem. Now, we started talking about this a little bit already, but it's worth repeating. Verse 51 Caiaphas did not say any of this on his own, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that what? Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. What's our problem? Our problem is sin. Our problem is unbelief. Like the people who saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead with their own eyes... And then said, well, I'm going to need a little bit more than this to believe in Jesus. We are constantly looking for reasons not to believe. We see the glories of God's creation all around us. And we say, what a happy accident that this exists. What a wonder that the world created itself in such beauty and complexity. We see the wonder of God's providence in our own lives. and, And we say, well, I'm glad that worked out. And God didn't even need to intervene. It just all worked out without him. What a coincidence. When we fall and fail, we blame God. When we succeed, we ignore God. Like the religious leaders in this story, we would rather reign in hell than serve in heaven. We would rather shake our fists in rebellion against God Than to open our hands in worship of God. It's a big problem. What's the solution? Here's God's solution, and it's our third word a word about substitution. Sometimes little words make a big difference. In this passage, that little word is the word for, F O R. Jesus died for the nation. Jesus died for the Gentile believers around the world. When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just defeat Satan, though he did. He didn't just demonstrate his love for us, though he did. He died for us. He died in our place. He died as our substitute. He died a miserable death on the cross so that we might live a glorious life in the kingdom of God. Here's a quote from John Stott's book, The Cross of Christ. If you haven't read it, you should read it. It's in our church library. Fantastic book. John Stott writes this, The concept of substitution may be said then to lie at the heart of both sin and and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, and the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be man claims prerogatives that belong to god alone god accepts penalties that belong to man alone if you are a christian it is because jesus died on the cross for you that's how much he loves you that's how much he cares that he would leave the glories of heaven to come to this earth to be ridiculed and mocked and disbelieved and spit upon and ultimately murdered. This murderous plan that the Sanhedrin concocted came to pass. We are in, uh, chronologically speaking, from this point on in John's gospel, the last week of Jesus' life. He did this because your life matters to him. He did this because he loves you. And nothing in heaven and on earth, neither height nor depth nor anything in all of creation will ever be able to separate you from his love. He didn't die for you because you're worthy of heaven. He didn't die for me because I'm worthy of heaven. Far from it. He died to make us worthy of heaven. That leads to our fourth word, last one, a beautiful word, a word about diversity. The religious leaders didn't like diversity. Religious legalistic people usually don't. They had a fence, and Romans could not come into the fence, and Gentiles could not come inside the fence, and sinful people couldn't come inside the fence, and poor people couldn't come inside the fence, and Hurting people, diseased people, blind people, crippled people could not come inside the fence. Exclude, exclude, exclude. Jesus said, I'm moving the fence. Include, include, include. My kingdom includes the lost children of the nations. My kingdom includes people from every nation and every people group on this planet. That's why, while not every single congregation is as diverse as the kingdom of God, we should strive for as much diversity as we can possibly experience on this side of heaven. We must never exclude, through bigotry or any other reason, the very people that Jesus died on the cross to include. I'm an American I love America, we do not worship an American Jesus. Uh, Jesus is the Lord of, of Americans and Canadians and Mexicans. He is the Lord of people in Asia and Africa and Europe and people in the Middle East. Wherever there is faith, wherever there is a person who kneels down and says, Lord, I need you to save me. There is Jesus and there is the kingdom of God. He is the Lord and Savior of everyone who believes. Jesus, as we said in our words of encouragement today, came to tear down the dividing walls of hostility that separate us one from another so that we may no longer find our core identity in what divides us but that we might find our core identity in Christ, the great uniter who brings us and makes us one. That's life inside the fence. That's life inside the kingdom of God. The question is, are you inside the fence? Do you believe? One must die to save us. Thankfully, he did. Let's go to God in prayer. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your providence that Jesus went to the cross in our place. We thank you, Lord, that your kingdom is, is an unstoppable kingdom. We thank you that your grace is inexhaustible grace. We thank you that your peace is everlasting. And we pray, Lord God, that you would sustain us moment by moment day by day, until we see you face to face. Lord, take away any sin that hinders us from experiencing the fullness of your love and restore us once again by the power of your gospel. Hear our prayer, for we pray in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.